0: Thanks, you guys. Uh, Can we just thank them again for a wonderful job leading worship? Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And uh, good evening. And it's already Thursday night, so this is my last time uh, with you uh, teaching. And, yes, I feel the same way. And yet uh, what I want to do just very quickly before we get into the text is give you some resources for for staying in touch. So I'm just going to go through these real quickly. Our church is called churchbcc.org. Uh, And you can get podcasts there and live stream of our sermons and that kind of thing. There's a book not in the bookstore on spiritual disciplines called Breathing New Life into Faith. That's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, If you want writings, those are available at stepbystepjourney.com. And finally, uh, I have an Instagram account called RP Dahlstrom, and it's only pictures of nature. No grandkids, no urban stuff. No poetry. Just when I go hiking, I take pictures, put them on Instagram. So we live in a beautiful part of the world. My wife and I, and we're privileged to travel as well, so uh, the pictures don't go there. So that's that. And now let's move quickly on to Ezekiel. I want to uh, share with you tonight about turning toward. I was at a funeral a couple of weeks ago, and uh, my life verse is Jeremiah 9, verse uh, 23, 24 which reads this, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. But if one would boast, let him boast only of this, that he understands and knows me. And then I will confess to you, that's my live verse since February 1976, ski retreat, Cal Poly, where I encountered God through that verse and it changed the course of my life. And so I've quoted that verse for... Over 40 years, and I've stopped there. Let him understand and know, let let him boast that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. Stop. That's not the whole verse. I'm going to read on. That he knows that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. And when this was read at the funeral, it was a piercing conviction in my heart that I have said to people for 43 years, hey, make sure you know God, knowing God. So I'm not knowing God, knowing God, knowing God, knowing God, knowing God, without ever naming the character of God the way that this verse names the character of God. Because here's the danger. What's happening in our age, the age in which we find ourselves, is we are surrounded by people with outward forms of Christianity, who in spite of having proper words and proper forms are often mean-spirited and proud. And in their pride and mean-spiritedness are utterly misrepresenting uh, the Lord. Look, if you're going to boast, boast in this, that you understand and know God. What about God? That God is all about justice and loving kindness. Man, that's super powerful, right? That God is about always being infinitely for you, as we heard this morning uh, so powerfully from Nicole, and, and, and that God is about justice, that God cares deeply for every person on the planet, particularly those with no voice that's our calling to represent that heart, right? And so the reason that Israel is in exile is God is trying to do this. Wake up, you guys, to your calling to represent my heart. So they find themselves in this difficult time in order to wake them up. And God's people in exile simply means this. Listen, if you're in exile, it means that you're a people now in a cultural minority, not cultural prominence. And by the way, that's okay. Whether we're in prominence our minority is not our prerogative to determine that's God's prerogative. So if we don't understand exile and how to live in exile, we're going to live in bitterness in exile. And if we live in bitterness in exile, we're going to continue to perpetuate the very problem that brought us into exile in the first place. In exile, it's incumbent upon us to represent accurately the heart of God. And so we may find ourselves as evangelicals in cultural exile, fine. And then many of us in the room also find us in personal exile because exile is simply this, the dissonance between where you are and where you want to be. You want health? It's cancer. You want marriage? It's singleness. Or it's divorce. Or it's infidelity. You want meaningful work and you're stuck at a low-paying job or you're stuck at a well-paying job that you hate. You want to make a difference in the world and instead you come home and watch TV every night and you feel stuck in your life. That's exile. So whether, whether it's personal exile or cultural exile or both fine. The question on the table is this. How do we live well in exile? When, when there's a distance between where we are and where, where we want to be. How do we live well there? And, and so there's three practices that are going to help us live well. And I'm going to just kind of go through these now, and then we're going to go through them one at a time. We need to, first of all, embrace reality. Second, we need to embrace repentance. And then third, we need to experience righteousness. So embrace reality, embrace repentance, and then we will experience righteousness. Let's look at the first one uh, uh, first, of course. Let's embrace reality. So chapter 18 of Ezekiel, verse 2, really interesting. It's a, it's a kind of saying, basically, that is extant, like a little euphemism or something like that. So in Ezekiel 18, this is how it goes. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, saying, say to the people, hey, what do you mean by repeating the proverb concerning the land of Israel? And then this is the proverb. The fathers have eaten the grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Boom. Now, you really have to stop and think about that for a minute, and it's hard to think after eating the way we just ate, because there's no blood in our heads right now. We're digesting, like, extra cheesecake and extra prime rib, but that's fine. That's, we're going to think about it anyway. Um, the question on the table, why are we suffering? And here, in this little parable, look. If the fathers ate the bad grapes, why are we the kids having to taste the bitterness? Do you understand? So wrapped up in that saying is this, why are we suffering if our parents blew it? So so I call that the family of origin excuse. And I got to sweep that away. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Because on the surface the people are complaining about the way God has actually structured the universe. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, this is where we read. I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And what's more, we all know there's truth in this, right? People who grow up in abusive families are more likely to become abusive parents. Drinking begats drinking. Greed begats greed. Prejudice begats prejudice. Uh, and as a result, this ends up replicating the, def- the dysfunction of the parents on subsequent generations. So subsequent generations do pay a price for the family of origin. Like if you're into psychology, this is B.F. Skinner, right? The, the the guy who said, hey, you don't write upon the tablet of the world. The world writes on you. Like you're born into the world, you're a blank piece of paper, and you're shaped By your experience. And so, what Ezekiel is saying here, what God is saying through Ezekiel is this the response is quite simple. That's the saying, but Ezekiel comes in and he says this You're not suffering for the sins of your parents, you're suffering for your sins. That's exactly what he says. He says it in chapter 18, verse 4, verse 5, verse 9, says it three times. He's saying, You are suffering for your own sins. And hear me, God is not saying two contradictory things, one in Deuteronomy, one in Ezekiel. Here's what God is saying. God says family systems absolutely lend themselves to inherited dysfunction. Totally true. Nobody argues with that. But God is also saying over and over again in the Bible that it's not a given we inherit that dysfunction. In fact, what makes the gospel good news is that the pattern can be broken. If your dad's an alcoholic, you don't have to be an alcoholic. If your parents were unfaithful, you don't have to be unfaithful. If you grew up in the midst of racial prejudice, you don't have to adopt racial prejudice. You can transform the life that you are living, and it doesn't have to be a causal uh, result of what you see going on around you, you can actually overcome that. In fact, not only can you overcome that, you're called to overcome that, right? So we got to kind of sweep away here this excuse. And one of my favorite illustrations of this in the Bible is King Josiah. Do you guys know that name? Josiah, 2 Kings 21, verse 19. Uh, Josiah's dad is Ammon. And Ammon is actually one of the worst kings in the history of the southern king of Judah. We're told, quote, Ammon did evil continually, according to the ways of his father. So Ammon's dad was bad. Ammon was bad, and then Josiah is born into that family. So he's born into a kind of a terrible situation, and the, some people were so mad at Ammon that they um, assassinated him, put him to death. So jo- Josiah, who had a bad dad, a bad granddad, Josiah becomes king at the age of eight, right? And if you know the story, and many of you do, like he just breaks the mold, he becomes one of the best kings in all of Israel's history. At the, at the age of 16, he starts kind of a, like a camp thing, like a cleanup program, right? And so, hey, this building's in disrepair. We got to fix it. He sends some people in. So they start working on uh, cleaning stuff up. They were in the back. Some guy says, oh, look what I found. What he found was the book of the law that nobody had been reading for generations, and so, uh, the scribe begins to read this book, and it says, Josiah tore his clothes, wept, proclaimed a national day of prayer and fasting and repentance, and he recovered the law, and he recovered the festivals, and he recovered the Passover, and he recovered worship, and there was a tremendous revival, and God's head of judgment was stayed because a 16-year-old overcame generational sin. And if he can do it, you can do it too. So, that's kind of this here, right? Right? We're going to see here that uh, there's always for everybody in the room one step we can take toward wholeness. We can always, there's a step we can take. This guy, Boris Kornfield, was a doctor. He was arrested for making disparaging comments against the Communist Party in the back of the Cold War days, post-World War II. Ultimately dies in the Gulag, but before he did, he led this this famous uh, literary figure, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, to Christ, and before he led him to Christ, he Cornfield himself was converted to Christianity from Judaism, and he had some conversations with a with a Christian who left him a little piece of the Bible and. He he was converted, and this is what he said to Solzhenitsyn just before, the night, literally the night before he died, he says to uh, Solzhenitsyn, he says, listen, I've lived my whole life as a life of bitterness. I've been hateful of my accusers, hateful of those who wronged me, hateful of the guards, hateful of the Communist Party, but now in prison I am freer than I ever was outside because I'm freed from the bitterness that was consuming my life because when I go over my own life with a fine tooth.'" tooth comb, and I uncover my failures and my greed and my lust, this is what I realize. I can't control the guards. I can't control the communist party. I can't control who's in power. I can't control how I'm treated. I can only control me. And when I look inside, I'm guilty. Boom. And then he, he prays and finds forgiveness in Christ and transformation in Christ and courage in Christ in spite of his situation. Does this make sense? So, so what I want you to see here is always have to develop a new mindset. And here's the, the mindset. Responsibility. Like, let's just take the victim word out of it and kind of sweep it away. Responsibility. We can write our own story. Victor, uh, Viktor Frankl learned this in Auschwitz. He wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. He, he said, he said every, look, people can take every freedom from you. What can never be taken from you is your freedom to respond no one can take that from you. So can bad things happen? Yes. Do bad things happen? Yes. Doesn't matter. You can respond properly. Yeah. And so, so uh, Frankel taught that, and Cornfield uh, uh, taught that, and Josiah the Boy King taught that. Why? Because that's, I mean, that's reality. And so the truth is, many of us, when we play the family of origin card, we're, what we're doing is we're, we're delaying our movement toward wholeness, and and we're kind of parking, and we're saying, you know, we got to wait here until this stuff changes. Well, you can't control this stuff, but what you can control is your response, right? And so um, Israel here had a little bit of that mentality, and that's why the children were saying, hey, why are we suffering anyway? We should be suffering. Look, our parents were the bad guys, uh, and now we're suffering? They don't see, listen, why don't they see their own sin? Because they see the sin of somebody else, 2020, man, and they don't see their own. Hey, does that sound like at all familiar to anybody in the room? Uh, I'll tell you, back in the day when I first started preaching, the church I led, we'd make little cassette tapes because people could sign up and, you know, oh, that was a great sermon. I want to hear it again or I want to give it to somebody or something like that. I remember preaching a two part series. Uh, something, a word to husbands on how to treat your wives. And a word to wives on how to love your husbands, right? It was a two-part, it was a two-part thing. And it was so, it was hysterical. Here, so i was speaking to husbands, and now here's the tape list: Sally, Mary, Jane, you know, like all giving this for their husband. Hey, I gotta play this under your pillow at night, you know, you're gonna learn to love me properly. The women got it, man, when it came to understanding what the husband's supposed to do. The women saw it 2020. And then when I speak to the women on their thing, right? Who's signing up? You know, Jack, Harry, Tom, Sid, like, hey, listen to this, you know? This is what we do. And inherent in that is this propensity, I mean, Jesus calls it log eye syndrome, right? He says, hey, you got, a, you got a speck that you see in your brother's eye over there, but you got a redwood in your own eye. <laughs> like, how are you going to get that speck out with a redwood in your eye? It's a beautiful word picture, right? So, like, here's the church picking on some particular sin, whatever, you name it, whatever it is. And we, we said, man, Western civilization hangs on this, and we're blind to our own greed. Blind to our own individualism, blind to our own consumerism, our racism, our nationalism. Enough! Amen. That stuff's a fir tree, man. Oh, wait, <laughs> I'm in California. That stuff's a redwood tree. <laughs> Get it out of there. So we deal with our stuff. That's what Ezekiel's saying. Second excuse is that it's the I'm special excuse, right? As last night, right, in chapter 16, hey, I'm the most beautiful bride and that kind of stuff. God loved Israel, and there was that marriage metaphor. And, and, and so what happens, this shows up in other places, in the prophets, but it's important to name in this context. God chose Israel to shine as light, and so God blesses and blesses and blesses. And hear this. There's something inherently dangerous about receiving lots of blessings. There's just something dangerous about it. Uh, why? Because we who have received a lot of blessings end up with kind of this uh, subterranean sense of entitlement. Like, oh, this stuff that I have, this position, this comfort, this education, I've somehow earned it. And then what this does is it leads to a disregard for the sufferings and needs of others, which is exactly what happened. Remember the, the complaint in Ezekiel sixteen forty nine. Look, you're, you're wealthy, And you're arrogant, but you're disregarding the poor. Like, why would they disregard the poor? Because they'd be like this. Look, we did it. Look what we did. We're up here. We climbed the mountain. You know, we did the workout. We got the grades. So get your act together. Now, we got to get over that mentality. All of us do in the room. Especially us. Like, many of us are people of privilege in the room. I would say I am. I'll tell you why I say that. I went to a website called globalrichlist.com. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not, but it's kind of a fun little thing if you want to have a depressing morning because <laughs> what you do is you type your uh, salary in there, you type your salary in there, and it'll tell you on a global scale where you are. So members in the room we may have this thing where we kind of complain about the, you know, the, oh, the 1%, oh, the 1%. And we talk about the 1% like they're the devil or something. Well, so this is what I did. I don't know your salary. You don't know mine. I typed in what I thought was a pretty low salary for where I live anyway, $45,000 a year. I typed that in the global versus thought. Her, and I find out if I make 45 dollars am not in the top 1%. I'm in the top half percent globally, top half percent. Like uh, out of 200 people, 199 make less than me if I make $45,000 a year. Oh, and if you live in Ghana, to make 45000 take you 281 years to make that kind of money. Now, listen, I, I can hear your brains. Yeah, whatever, it's cheaper to live in Ghana. I understand. <laughs> like, we get defensive. We get defensive. I get it. But I, I was just going to say, I was just going to say this to you as your friend, right? Because I like you guys. Here, look, we have to get over the sense that we've earned this stuff. I was born into clean water. I was born into clean water. I was, I'm adopted, man. I was born into Mount Hermon. I didn't earn that. I didn't earn those amazing cinnamon rolls and the redwoods that are the legacy of my faith and John Hunter. I'm, I didn't earn it. I wanted beef jerky. I came up and then I heard the speaker and then my life was changed. I didn't didn't earn clean water. I didn't earn Mount Hermon. I didn't earn Cal Poly. I didn't earn Seattle Pacific University. I didn't earn access to high-paying jobs. doesn't mean I don't work hard. I do work hard. But what it does mean is that my hard work yields exponentially more blessing to me because of where I was born. That's what it means. And you know what that's called? Privilege. And we may not like to hear it, but that's what it's called. Through no choice of my own, through no work of my own, I get more for what I put into the equation. I just do. So others work as hard or harder and suffer more and enjoy less and die young. This is why Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Common English Bible, What? and now I'm quoting the Bible. What's so special about you? What do you have that you weren't given? And if it was given to you, how can you brag? You, here's the thing, you can't. Because the thing is, in addition to family heritage, which for many of us has been over, overwhelmingly positive, we, we have faith heritage. We have certain values heritage. We have security. That's all. It served us well. Celebrate it. Rejoice in it. But don't, let's not like kid ourselves into believing we earned it. Enough boasting. That's what he's saying, right? So enough with an entitlement mentality, enough of looking down on those who are suffering and judging them of their suffering, or worse Feeling indignant, us when we suffer at all. The real point of being blessed, we all know it. The real point of being blessed is that God is now giving us a greater responsibility to actively be blessing others. That look, if my cup is full, like if this is full, I just have, like what I ought to do right now is just take the top off and just you know soak all of you, right? Because that's our calling—a river of living water, blessed to be a blessing. All things pertain to life and godliness in me. Why? So that I can give to you. So that you can give to others. That's the Christian life. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. <laughs> so uh, let's kind of wrap this section up by declaring reality. God isn't saying all sufferings is a result of your sin. We live in a fallen world and stuff happens, but God is saying we reap what we sow. That's what God is saying. And if I sow entitlement mentality, I reap. Arrogance and disregard for the poor. And if I sow victim mentality, then I'm going to continue to hover over the airport and never land the plane on the runway that is freedom and healing for me. I'm just going to continue to be bitter. So I got to deal with that. And one of the ways for, of dealing with that is when I'm in exile, and Nicole's stuff this morning is perfect on this. When I'm in exile, I got to figure out how to get into that freedom circle that she talked about. And what she said on Monday that was so significant is curiosity rather than condemnation or anger, is how we should approach exile. Uh, Approach exile with curiosity. Yeah, I'll give you an example. I think I hinted at the very end of my sermon last night, a couple of weeks ago, while I was preaching on idolatry and confessing that I depend on tech too much and get too much joy out of technology, my computer, and iPad, were being ripped off at the very moment when I'm saying God, I lay this idol down, and God goes, I, I, "You bet you do, buddy. It's already gone. You know, <laughs> it's left the building. Like someone went into this little place where I stay in the city, and they they stole my whole backpack. So I was pretty upset for a little while, but really quickly, I'm pretty resilient. I'm like, whatever, just stuff, you know. And yeah, I lost some things, on, some notes on the computer. Oh, iPad gone. Yeah, get a new iPad. Computer gone. Getting a new computer, some notes from a sermon series. Well, those, never get those back, but it'll be better the next time, whatever. Like, it's just all good. And then I realized do you know what is, was stolen? My wool hat was stolen. And when that, when I, so everything else is like, whatever, whatever. Here's a $5 wool hat, and he, this is me. No! <laughs> what is that? Like, who, who took my hat? I was so mad that I said things I had to repent of, right? I was was mad about that hat, that stupid hat. And so once the rage kind of drained out of me, um, like I practiced Nicole's thing even before she spoke. I was like, now why am I so mad about this? Like this is, like what's up? And I realized something. You know what that hat represents to me? That hat represents to me an identity that was also an idol actually like this is a little wool ski hat and I'm a rebel I'd wear that hat downtown when I'm meeting people downtown so as to say to all the upscale people downtown I don't belong downtown, man I'm not downtown material I'm not suit and tie I'm you know powder and skiing and and <laughs> and I'm not and I'm not you know Abercrombie and F- Finch or Fitch or whoever they are you know, I'm REI, and I'm not even REI. On my best days, I'm Goodwill. This sweater, <laughs> ten bucks, man. I'm I'm cheap. I'm recreational. I'm anti-corporate. Stick it to the man. That's who I am, man. And then the hat's gone, and the hat represents all that. And seriously, I got to go. You know what? That identity is more important to me than my identity, in Christ. And I got to let go of it. Do you understand? So, so, man, when we're in exile, there's this dissonance. Apply curiosity to dissonance, and God's going to show you what you need to do next, which is, next slide, <laughs> repent. And repent means, uh, literally, the word means to turn around. That's all it means. So there's two parts to turning. Turning from, turning toward, right? So, um, in uh, Luke chapter three, John the Baptist is preaching, and he's baptizing people, and so people come to John. They want to be, they want to be baptized, and you know, I would love it if on a Sunday, as the text says here, great multitudes were coming to be baptized. I'd be like, yeah, man, let's fill the tank right now and get this done. This is amazing. This is revival. Well, not so much here with John the Baptist. This is super interesting. So, uh, crowds come out to be baptized. What does he say to them? You brood of vipers. Like, who does that when they're preaching? <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath that is coming? And verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't, don't fall prey... We won't go back to the other previous slide. Don't fall prey to entitlement mentality because look at look, look what he says. He says, don't say to yourselves, hey, we have Abraham as our father thinking that because you're in the right denomination or you sing the right music or you the right, the right you know, translation of the Bible or you go to the right camp or you give the right amount, that somehow that makes you righteous. No, don't think that the outward forms have anything to do with your heart, bring forth real fruit and keep it with prince. And then when they say, well, really? What does that look like? He gives, he gives kind of very practical advice. He says, look, you're going to turn away from these things. And then, if, this is what he says, if you have two hats, give one away. I have 10. <laughs> you have You have two coats, give one away. Oh, you collect taxes? Stop uh, uh, swindling people and taking more than uh, is required that they pay. Oh, you serve in the military? Don't abuse your power. It's just very practical stuff that ultimately ends up blessing people who are on the outside. And he says, that's actually what repentance looks like. So when we come to this, there's a turning from and a turning toward. And uh, verses 10 to 13 of Ezekiel 18 says this. Uh, Turn away from eating at pagan shrines, seducing your neighbor's wife, bullying the weak, stealing, piling up bad debts, admiring idols, hats, for example, or anything else, committing outrageous obscenities, and exploiting the poor. Now, we can go through the whole list, but we don't have time. I'll just say this. If you're wondering if something you're doing is an outrageous obscenity, it is an outrageous obscenity. Like, if you're wondering, then it's an outrageous obscenity. Don't do it. So, I'm turning away from stuff... But then I have to turn toward things. This is so important because repentance only begins with setting stuff aside. It can never stop there. There's, remember that story about the, uh, the guy who has all the demons cast out of him and then uh, nothing fills him and then the demons come back and they see, oh, this is a good real estate thing here. Like this is clean and ready to move in. Call 20 friends and it's worse than ever. That's this thing. Repentance is never just about no. No. Because if it's only about no, a couple of things happen. First, it doesn't work. You never just clean the house. Because when you empty the house, someone's moving in. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is if if all I view repentance as is turning away from things, then as a Christian, I only become known for what I'm against. And we're at a huge risk right now in American culture of completely alienating Generation Y, Generation Z, and millennials who are running away from the church in dramatic fashion right now because we're misrepresenting Christ because, yes, we've turned away from particular sins, but we haven't filled our our daily life with the values of Jesus. I'm quoting now from an article. Today, we're seeing... Growing impatience with the institutional church's accommodation to temporal power, younger generations are no longer willing to give the church the benefit of the doubt, and they're driving a mass exodus out of Western churches, which they see as a primary source of pain and abuse rather than hope and redemption. Carl Copac says it this way: We're losing an entire generation; they're just gone. It's the worst thing to happen to the church in 200 years, and it's happening right now. All across the West Coast. Children of boomers see the church today as complicit in and co-opted by the ways of the world. They have little interest in perpetuating churches which produce loyal foot soldiers for the empire of the day when they know instinctively that we're called to march to the beat of a different drum. So, I mean, we play that song for Zumba. We're going to march to the beat of a different drum. Well, let's do it, right? Let's be about this justice and this mercy. We can't just say... We're against smoking and we're against drunkenness and we're against sexual immorality. Fine, be against those things. Fine, move away from pride. Move away from anger, but move toward hospitality. Move toward justice. Move toward generosity. Move toward reconciliation. Move toward hope because that's the real gospel. It doesn't just empty us. It fills us up. So we have to get there. We have, that's the direction we have to move in. And when we move in that direction, here's what happens. Boom. We experience righteousness, and that's the last thing. Now, the reason that there's a wood pile as a picture there is uh, A, because it's a picture I had with me. The (laughs) rest are on my stolen computer. And B, uh, this is how my wife and I stack wood. We burn wood. We don't use electric heat where we live. We just burn wood. And burning wood, I want to say, is a lot of work. That wood was... Gathered out of the forest, cut, hauled, split, stacked. That pile will move in under the house before the massive snow comes. And then during the winter, we'll go down, we'll pick it up, and it's always so thick. But here's the, here's the point. a the lot of wood, how did it get that way? One piece at a time. That's how it got that way. I just want you to think about that. How to get that way? One piece at a time. What is repentance? Look, it's moving away from one thing and adding one thing. And moving away from one thing and adding one thing for the rest of your life. And then if the pile is is the justice and mercy and generosity and hope and healing that is your life, if that's your pile, then the beauty of the gospel is this: it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And if you have to spend a few pieces, if you've got to light them on fire to offer warmth and hospitality to somebody, no worries, God's going to provide more. There'll be more wood where that came from, more and more and more. You will never run out uh, to change metaphors. You're a river of living water. But you must turn from and toward, over and over again, or it's not real repentance. It's not repentance, only to turn from. Amen. So uh, it's our collective failure to live differently that's at the forefront of the reality that these people are leaving the church, and the only way we change it is repentance. And so this, uh, this evening, I think all of us at some level find ourselves in exile. Some of us feel in cultural exile. We feel like Christi- Christianity is slipping away as the dominant narrative in the United States. Okay, we're in cultural exile. God doesn't abandon us. Remember the first night? Where, hey, what's the glory doing in Babylon? I'll tell you what it's doing in Babylon. The glory is still with the people of God. That's what it's doing in Babylon. Fine, you're in Babylon, so is God's glory. Fine, you're the minority, you're still people of hope. Nothing's changed. Quit being angry about it and live in minority status. It'll be fine. So that's the first thing. And then if you're in personal exile, there's a distance between where you are and where you want to be. Don't fall prey to a victim mentality so you're endlessly circling and never landing the plane into healing and freedom. And don't fall victim into an entitlement mentality, right? That will lead to complacency. Instead, when when God convicts me, as God spoke to us last night, we turn from an idol. Tonight, we turn toward something. We turn toward. Turn toward loving your neighbor. I mean, literally, you know, loving your neighbor. My neighbor's a secular Iranian immigrant, fallen Muslim, if you could call him that. I don't know what he is. But he's a warrior fan, and so am I. (laughs) And so, all through the April and May, we had warrior parties at his house, man. That's what we did. And, and then, uh, I mean, I don't know his heart exactly, but we've talked about Jesus. And I was in the hospital last week, and he called my wife when he, the test came back negative. He calls my wife and he says, I thank God that Richard is okay. I thank God. D- do you understand? Love your neighbor like your literal neighbor. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe your next step is, uh, figuring out how to care for the least of these. We have a homeless shelter. There's people who volunteer in our homeless shelter. Fly on up one night a week. It's no problem. We'll take you. It's good. <laughs> Turn toward generosity. Turn toward hospitality. There's a, David Brooks has written a great new book. He's a uh, columnist for the New York Times called The Second Mountain. I'm just going to read a little story here to hopefully inspire you. Kathy Fletcher and David Simpson have a son named Santi. He went to public school in Washington, D.C., and Santi had a friend named James who sometimes went to bed hungry, so Santi invited him to occasionally sleep over his house. James had a friend, and that kid had a friend, and so on, and so now if you go to Kathy and David's house on any given Thursday night, there would be 25 or 30 kids sitting around the, din- uh, the, the dinner table. That's their next thing, 25 or 30 kids. Generally, four or five uh, living with Kathy and, uh, and David at any given time, and then every summer, Kathy and David round, round up a caravan, and they take 40 inner-city kids out to, for a vacation on Cape Cod, <laughs> who'd never go there otherwise. They just, they just open their eyes, and they said, Wow, we have a lot, and they begin responding to the needs around them. And now they're at the center of a sprawling extended family. And then David Brooks says, I started going to dinner at Kathy and David's house on Thursday night sometime in early 2014, invited by a mutual friend, I walked in the door, greeted by a tall, charismatic man who had dreadlocks and uh, dripping, soulful eyes. I held out my hand to shake his hand, and he said, we don't shake hands here. We hug here. And he, and he gives David Brooks, this super reserved guy, this big bear hug. I'm not naturally a huggy guy, but uh, what began that night has been five years of hugging. And this is what, this is what he says. He says that Thursday night was critical to, tr- to leading him to faith in Christ, that Thursday night thing was critical leading him to faith in Christ. He said every night, about third of the way through the meal, they'd go through, they'd, no cell phones allowed at the table. they go through, uh, and everybody goes around the table, uh, 30 people. Hey, want to hear a highlight of the week? I, I want you to share something nobody else knows about you. And they just do that every time. They just do that every time. And David Brooks said, um, my heart is hungry for this. And he didn't know at the time that it was the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis helped him figure that out. But David and Kathy never, you know, opened up the four laws. They just opened their home. They couldn't prove the age of the earth. They're politicians. They just opened their home. They, They don't have it all together. They have bills. They have jobs. They have obligations. They're in dissonance. They're exiles. They just open their home. So if you're telling me that you'll step into God's kingdom when you have it all together, I'm telling you, you'll never step in. It starts now. Because the world is desperately hungry for what you uniquely have to give. So the way we close tonight, I'm going to ask Jeff to just come up and play his guitar for like, two minutes, and ask you if you're here with a spouse or with friends, would you just pray, God, would you show us what is the next stick of of wood that you want us to put on your kingdom pile? What do you want us to do? Do you want us to be serving in a shelter? Do you want us to be serving a community meal? Do you want us to be uh, loving our neighbors in a particular way? Do you want us to be practicing generosity? Should we take 30 kids to Mount Hermon next summer? You just show us. You just show us. And I promise you, if you start praying tonight, you may not get the answer tonight, but you'll get the answer, and the answer will change your life. Father, meet us now. It's just stunning to me. So powerful to think what could happen to the Bay Area and Washington and Colorado and Oregon and North Carolina and Georgia if every one of us in the room put a piece of wood on the, on the pile and contributed to building what is the kingdom of God. So we invite you, Father, to show us how to step into your story. Having stepped away from some things last night, we want to finish the circle and step in. Speak to us now as couples, as families. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I just leave you with this as a benediction from Ezekiel chapter 36. But you, mountains of Israel, though you've been neglected and dry, you will shoot forth your branches. You'll yield your fruit, and all will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I'll turn to you, and you'll be tilled, and you'll be sown, and I'll multiply you, and then you and all the nations will know that I am the Lord. May that be our story as we leave Mount Hermon. Amen.